Even Bible scholars admit lots of other books were written at the time the Bible documents were written. So how do we know that we have the right ones in the Bible? Didn't a group of church leaders just get together at a council or something and make a decision on that? How do we know that they made the right choices? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran, and welcome to Bible 805. Today we're going to answer those questions and many more related to them in Lesson 7 of our Truth and History series. We're going to talk about canonicity and why we have the books that we have in the Bible. Let's review where we've been so far. We started looking at the ancient manuscripts and dating them. And we did this because dating the manuscripts is really the foundation for all the other truth claims. We looked at how historians determine truth, and we looked at how important it is to have historical anchors for the truth of documents. We looked at how the documents are written, what they're written on, the archaeology that surrounds them, the number of copies, various things to determine how, if manuscripts have what I call historical anchors, and what I mean by that is can the truth of what that particular religion or group is saying, is it verified or repeated anywhere in secular history that would show that this really happened? After we set up that framework, we then looked at the scriptures of other religions and we found that there was little to no historical anchors or verification on them. In contrast, we see that the Christian faith, our scriptures, are both historical and evidential. We looked at the Old Testament, we looked at the Apocrypha, we looked at the New Testament, and we looked at the Gnostic Gospels. And we found that in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament that we have many historical anchors that regardless of what decision we come to spiritually that we can trust that what these manuscripts tell us actually took place where they say it happened, when they said it happened, and in the way that they say it happened. Now, that's one thing, but there were lots of things that we might be able to show that the history of them is true. But how is it that only certain books that were written during these times made it into our Bibles? That's the topic of canonicity, and we're going to talk about that now. First, let's define the term. Canon means a rule or norm. In other words, it's what are the right books, the correct books that make up a collection of books. There's all sorts of canons that's not, um, you know, unique to the Bible. There's a canon of Shakespeare or the canon of whatever, but that means the right collection of books that define that particular belief system. Now, it's not antiquity. It's not authenticity. It's not even how historical the books are that makes a book canonical or authoritative. Now, listen, Listen to this. This is this is super super important that you understand this distinction. Books are considered canonical because their authority is established by God and merely discovered by God's people. Let me read you a, a couple of quotes. One scholar put it this way: We are careful to say that God determined the canon and the church discovered the canon. The canon of scripture was not created by the church. Rather, the church discovered or recognized it. In other words, 
months. God's Word was inspired and authoritative from its inception. It stands firm in the heavens, as Psalm 119.89 says, and the Church simply recognized that fact and accepted it. In 1840, uh, there was a defense of inspiration called Theopanousta, and this is what it said about the Bible. In this canonicity, then, the Church is a servant, not a mistress a depository and not a judge. She exercises the office of a minister, not of a magistrate. She delivers a testimony and not a judicial sentence. She discerns the canon of scripture. She does not make it. She has recognized their authenticity. She has not given it. The authority of the scriptures is not founded then on the authority of the church. The church is founded on the authority of the scriptures. It is incredibly important, again, that you understand that the church does not decide canonicity. The church discovers canonicity. When people say, oh, the church just decided these things and they didn't want others because they weren't politically correct or whatever, that is not true. They discovered what God had ordained. Now, how was canonicity discovered? Through it all, God expects people to use their minds. He has given us a mind, and the church came up with five essential questions to ask of scriptures to determine if the books are canonical or not. Now, I'll go through that, I'll go through an overview of them, and then I will go into each one in more detail. Number one, was the book written by a prophet of God? Number two, was the writer confirmed by acts of God? Number three, does the message tell the truth about God? Number four, did it come with the power of God? And number five, was it accepted by the people of God? Let's go into each one of these in more detail. Number one, was the book written by a prophet of God? Throughout the Old Testament, one typical way before someone says something, uh, you will find statements like this again and again. And the word of the Lord came to the prophet, or the Lord said unto, or God spoke in a certain way. In the New Testament, Paul will, for example, in Galatians 1, he says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from man nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. The books in the Bible either explicitly or implicitly declare that God is the one who actually gives them the message. Either they were written by a prophet or an apostle or someone who is close to them. For example, Mark was a close associate of Peter. Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. In the Old Testament, we rely on Jewish scholarship and tradition to tell us who the writers were. In the New Testament, the Gospels are attributed to specific writers, and the Church recognized the authorship of the letters from the earliest days. Norm Geisler puts it this way, It's substantiated these claims of inspiration are so clear that it was hardly necessary to discuss whether some books were divine in origin. In most cases, it was simply a matter of establishing the authorship of the book. For example, Paul is very specific and clear. I, Paul, wrote the this. Peter says, I wrote this. There, It was very clear. John says, I wrote this. And so, because it was an apostle speaking to the church on behalf of the Lord, they knew that it was inspired writing. Criteria number two, 
was the writer confirmed by the acts of God. Norm Geisler has a good comment here also where he says, There were true and false prophets, so it was necessary to have divine confirmation of the true ones. The true ones were able to perform miracles. Also, too, when they gave a prophecy, it always happened. Moses was given miraculous powers in Exodus 4. We see that. Elijah triumphed over the prophets of Baal. Of course, Jesus did lots of miracles. In Hebrews 2, 3 and 4, it puts it this way. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And then 2 Corinthians 12, 2 says, the, the things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles, were done among you with great perseverance. So when the canon of scripture was being put together, signs had to be part of the credentials, so to speak, of the author to confirm that they were from God. Criteria number three, does the message tell the truth about God? This is so important because God is consistent in his message. In Numbers 23:19, it tells us, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? In Titus 1-2, it says, A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. This is so important. And again, this is something that really sets apart the Bible from other scriptures. It, it is consistent from first to last. And if you study it carefully, and we're going to be going through this next year, you'll see that perhaps some things are only given in shadow form. They're fulfilled later. There is a progression of revelation, but it doesn't change. There isn't one plan of salvation, and then it changes. There isn't one characteristic of God or something that he's like, and then that changes. It is consistent throughout. And so any of the books that were included in the canon had to have this consistent teaching. Now, some people will find apparent inconsistencies. And when this happens, when people bring that up, either usually I found that they have not read it in context or they do not have an overall view of Scripture. For example, God is a God of both justice as well as love. And you see that really in the Old and New Testaments if you read them carefully. All the cults and religions that came after Christianity claim some kind of new religion. Uh, for example, Islam and the Mormon Church. And they say that they now have new truth. The Christian Bible says no. It has to be consistent consistent with what was written from the very start with Moses until Revelation. That is something that does make the Christian religion unique because from first to last it tells one story. In Hinduism, Buddhism, Quran, Mormonism, all of these things, t truth the, what they consider right, wrong, changes over time. It's not like that with the Christian gospel and that's really important. So one of the applications, one of the key things is any message that is contrary to what is already revealed is false. In Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3, very, very interesting passage. Listen closely. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, and 
if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place. And he says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and all your soul. This is so important because you see, Moses was saying here, even if someone says that they're going to do a miracle and they do it, miracles alone are not proof. They have to be consistent with what has already been written in the Bible. That's how you test miracles. Miracles alone, again, are never evidence of divine approval. They always must confirm God's message as already revealed and not contradict it. Now, for you to really understand in your own life, very important application to understand when something is inconsistent, you have to know the Word of God. Great verse in Acts 17.11 where it says, Now the Bereans were of a more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. This is such a great verse. The Apostle Paul, and now we go, oh wow, the Apostle Paul, they took his words and they checked them with what was in the script. Now, of course, what they had was the Septuagint. Remember, we talked about that. They had the Greek version of the Old Testament. But the Old Testament is full of prophecies that prophesied about the Messiah, what he was going to do, what he would be like, how he would sacrifice himself for the sins of the people. And everything Paul said, they checked him out. Does this line up with Scripture? Is this what it said? And they were commended for that. And what this teaches us is always check out what you hear. I tell my my classes too, if you feel I'm wrong on something, check me out. Check out every teacher. We have to be very, very careful as we listen that we not come up with some version of some way to interpret the Bible that puts our ideas on top of the Bible. In one of the great statements of the Reformation is sola scriptura, the scripture alone. If you don't understand a passage, cross-reference it, do a word study, read the whole context of it, the chapter, the verse, the whole Bible. I will tell you always again and again that the Bible is the best commentary on itself. When there's confusion, when you don't understand something, see what other passages say about it, and many times clarity will come. Criteria number four, did it come with the power of God? In some ways, this is a little bit subjective, but God's word changes lives. It changes people. And we have to look at, um, here's how it's described in the Bible itself. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. 1 Peter 1.23 says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This power of the Bible is what separates it, what separates canonical books from historical ones like Maccabees. Again, 
very valid book historically can tell us a lot, but it lacks power. And also from devotional or edifying books, the Gospel of Barnabas is actually something that's, that's really delightful to read, but there is just, there's not the power in it that there is from the canonical books. And also, too, I think you could probably, I hope, uh, clearly see this in those passages that I read you from the Gnostic Gospels. They're kind of interesting, and there's all sorts of secret knowledge supposedly in them, but I do believe that even a casual reading shows that there's really no power in them. Criteria number five, was it accepted by the people of God, both initially and subsequently? Now, many of the books that were written at the same time might have been accepted for a brief period of time, but then they sort of fell away. All of the ones that we have in our Bible were accepted immediately by people and continued to be. Moses' writings were immediately accepted. In Joshua, uh, Joshua 24, 26, it said Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. In all of the Old Testament prophets, the various kings would ask advice and it would be answered in this way. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, said a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord the God of Israel says. And so from the start, all of these Old Testament passages and prophets, God spoke, it was written down, that was scripture. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, it says, And we thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. So from the earliest days, false or merely historical pastoral writings, they were labeled as such. They might be useful. Again, Maccabees is very useful for the history of the time, but it is not scripture. Now, in the New Testament, Paul, um, some interesting things that he has to say about it, he endorses both the Old and New Testament when he says in 1 Timothy 5.18, For the scripture says, Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out grain, and the worker deserves his wages. He's quoting a passage in Deuteronomy and then one in Luke, and he speaks of both of them as scripture. And then, rather, I, I love this quote, in Second Peter three fifteen and 16, it says, Peter says, Our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do other scriptures to their own destru- destruction. So here, of course, Peter is saying, Paul's writings are scripture. They might be a little hard to understand sometimes but you know that's Paul but uh, don't distort them they come from God now we have these writings they were recognized by the church from the earliest days but how was the canon formalized well there were various church councils that formalized the canon for the Old Testament for the Old Testament even though it had pretty much been solidified from the time of Ezra, and then we know that Josephus confirmed the same list. The Council of Jamnia in 90 AD actually sort of put the formal stamp on these are the accepted books of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, and for the Bible overall, Athanasius was actually for the New Testament. Athanasius of Alexandria was the first one to formally list the 27 books of the New Testament as we have them today in his Easter letter written 
written in 367. The Synod of Hypo and the Synod of, in 393 and the Synod of Carthage in 397 again repeated the list and that's been the same throughout church history. But it's important, very, very important to know that for both of these, the canon had been the canon as the canon, as these being the acceptable books, had been accepted and used by the people of God in the churches of God long before these councils formalized them. But (laughs) the story isn't over yet. That didn't mean that English-speaking people were able to read it. Because here we go back to remember Jerome's Latin Vulgate. That was the book, that was the translation that most people had access to throughout centuries. Now the problem is most people couldn't read back then. Uh, Books were very expensive to reproduce. So how did you learn God's word if you couldn't read and if you didn't have a Bible of your own? Well, at that time, the church, in the Mass, in the liturgy, they would read through the Bible in a year's time. So if you attended church regularly, you would hear it. Now, in addition to that, in the Middle Ages, if you didn't understand, unfortunately, though, it was written in Latin. So if you didn't understand Latin, you didn't understand it. But stained glass, the stained glass windows, these were actually conceived as a way to teach people what was in the Bible. And then there was a lot of drama at that time. There were what were called the mystery plays, and these would enact various parts of Scripture. So even the people, no matter where they were, they had an opportunity to learn God's Word. But then things changed, of course, with increased literacy, with economic growth, with the Reformation. Suddenly, more people were able to read the Bible. Now, the books of the English Bible were arranged in a way that I think is very unfortunate. Now, Jerome, he did a wonderful thing in translating things into the Vulgate, but he is the one who put the books in the order that they're in. And he actually followed the order of the Septuagint, where you have the history, then you have the poetry, then you have the prophets. And the reason, again, that we're going to be going through the Bible in chronological order next year is, though this might be a handy little way to organize organize them by genre, it doesn't make any sense at all if you want to know who was preaching or what was going on when certain history was taking place. Unfortunately, because that's how the Old Testament was organized, when they organized the New Testament, they also did it based on subject categories. First come the historical books, the Gospels and Acts, then come the epistles, the letters from Paul, and then other writers in the church, and finally, Revelation is at the end. It's not quite as confusing in the New Testament to keep things straight. It was a much shorter time period. But as you'll find next year when we read through the Bible in chronological order, it is interesting to read Acts and then the letters that were related to it. I think this will help you in your understanding of it. Okay, that's how it was arranged, the way it was arranged. But how did we get this whole thing of chapters and verses? This is one of the things, too, that in some ways is unfortunate because people pull out verses today or They'll just read passages, but these, remember, they were letters. They were entire books. They weren't broken up into little parts, and this was done actually to help people in public reading of Scripture. If you're going to be reading a section of a certain book of the Bible on 
every Sunday to the people who couldn't read, it'd be kind of hard sometimes to say, well, go about this far and, you know, when there were no, no divisions, no breaks, no anything like that. So a gentleman named Stephen Langdon, who is the Archbishop of Canterbury, he put the first, he was the one who put the modern chapter divisions around 1227 into the Latin Bible. And then the Wycliffe English Bible translation in 1382, that was the first English Bible to use the chapter patterns. And since then, we've pretty much followed their chapter divisions. Now then, a man who was um, called Stephanus, his actual name was Robert Estian, he was the first one to divide the chapters into verses, and he did that in 1555. I think it's interesting that many of the newer translations, in attempting to have people understand the Bible better, to help them out in really getting the whole scope of the Bible, are going to systems that are removing the chapter and verse divisions or they're making them really tiny in the margins, and, and I do think that that's a very good idea. Now, we might ask, why in the world did they do that? Why, uh, you know, it, it, it breaks up the scripture so much. It has really caused a lot of misinterpretation since then. And again, a couple of things I think are important to remember. First of all, they did do it for to help people in public reading and to be able to find your place where you were in the scriptures. But also, too, I think one thing that's important to remember People in the past had a much greater knowledge of the scope of the entire Bible. They would never, a biblical scholar would never, ever, ever read the Bible the way people do today, jumping in here, jumping in there, a little bit here, a little bit there, and saying that they understood it. They had more of a knowledge of these are the prophets that spoke then, this is when David wrote certain psalms, and so they could break it up the way they did without losing the sense of the overall scope of Scripture. We've lost that today. And that's why we absolutely must study and read in historical order for it to make sense. And that's what we're going to be doing in our Read Through the Bible series. Now, to summarize our teaching on canonicity, though the books of the Bible were written throughout the centuries, God is the one who decided on the writers and the content. Remember, scriptures tell us all scripture is God-breathed. It was not created by the will of man. Now, humanity's job, though, is to recognize what God did, to read it, and to study it, and to obey and to apply it. That's all for now. Please check out the notes and other materials at our www.bible805.com and please do sign up for the newsletter where I can let you know if I post additional materials for you on that site. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.